This is exactly right. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's 1943 in the Kingdom of Bulgaria. As the Second World War rages, King Boris dies suddenly and every nation is a suspect. The Butterfly King premieres March the 21st on Exactly Right. It's a cruel tale of a doomed royal dynasty. Somewhere, the truth is out there. Listen to The Butterfly King on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. Howard Pearson had always complained that his father was keeping him down, controlling his future too much. In October of 1935, he would begin to understand what being controlled really felt like. Six months after he murdered his parents, Howard was admitted to the Austin State Hospital. There was no life sentence or death penalty, but there was also no real end in sight for Howard, no definitive release date. It was never-ending. He would be committed at the state hospital until he was determined to be sane by the superintendent and his physicians. But that wouldn't happen if he didn't make progress with therapy. And here's the twist. If he did make progress, if the doctors changed their diagnosis, then Howard would be in trouble. His doctors would be obligated to call the district attorney and inform him that Howard was now sane. There would be no more insanity defense. The prosecutor in Austin could file murder charges against Howard, even if it happened decades later. He never went on trial in April of 1935, so there was no double jeopardy. Howard could still receive a death sentence, which terrified him. The Pearson family all seemed to stand by Howard. They felt so sorry for him. He had been unstable his entire life, yet he never received mental health treatment or medical intervention. He had a history of delusions and bitterness toward his father, and he was fixated on his education. But his dreams of becoming a famous scientist had been dashed by the judge. When Howard's parents proved to be an obstacle to academic success, he eliminated the obstacle. Will and Lena Pearson had been admired, influential residents in Austin. They had consistently supported their children, even Howard, who was mired in mental illness. Author Gary Laverne says that this was the picture presented to the media. Well, the, the media's reaction is that, look, if Bill and Alice, whose parents have been murdered, uh, believe that Howard's not right, who, who are we to say that Howard should be sent to prison, much less to be executed. I think Bill and Alice as siblings just clearly, clearly saved Howard from God only knows what. 
Well, we all know what they saved him from. They saved him from prison and maybe even the electric chair. Every chance they had, Bill and Alice argued that Howard was, in his heart, a really good person. And if he received help, he deserved a second chance. Whether or not that diagnosis is competent or not, it served the purpose of getting Howard out of jail and sending him to a hospital instead of a jail. And that should really be the end of this story, right? Howard would receive the treatment that he needed, and Will and Lena would be fondly remembered, the victims of a son who just needed help. But those aren't the stories I tell. I enjoy digging into messy, complicated, difficult stories. And as I suspected, there was more to this story than what I had read in the newspapers. And Howard's relatives now say that I was right. It took me about two months, but I finally tracked down Bill Pearson's daughter, Ann Pearson. She was Howard's niece. Ann knows about the family history and the story of Howard probably more than anyone because she knew Howard. And she says that, yes, Will and Lena Pearson did seem to be wonderful parents in the newspapers. But, as we know, the media can sometimes be an unreliable source. Anne's father, Bill, talked to her a lot about his own parents when she was growing up. He told her about Will Pearson, his career ambitions, and his incredible anger. It turns out that when the judge had a difficult day, it was difficult for everyone in the Pearson home. Anne tells me about something that her great aunt once told her. That was my, my grandmother's sister, Aunt Irma, my great Aunt Irma. And I, she was living in California at the time. And she, when she was young, she had gone to college in Greenville and had lived with my father's family, you know, when, when she was in her early 20s. So she lived with Will and Lena and the kids, including your father. And so she was around when my father was a child. And I, her, and she, she, I remember hearing her say one time, that, you know, my grandfather was the town angel and the home devil, was the way she put it. That everybody in town, he was highly respected, and everybody in town thought he was wonderful, but he had these really big temper tantrums at home. This news was especially startling to me. None of it was mentioned in the media, and in those letters from the vault of the Texas Supreme Court, the judge seemed very, very loving especially toward his eldest son, Bill. Will Pearson practically gushed over him, reminding him how often he thought of him, how much he valued their relationship. And the judge showed kindness toward Howard in his notes to his youngest son and seemed to be fond of his daughter, Alice. Was he really that affectionate to each of them? As it turns out, no, it was all an act, a way to manipulate each of his children to draw them closer, only to verbally abuse them when he was displeased. So when he was younger, Bill had often visited his parents. He had even moved back to Texas, putting his life on hold just to help the judge win his seat on the court. Bill was a dutiful son, but Ann Pearson says that her father really disliked his own father, and so did his sister Alice. You sure wouldn't know it from reading all those letters between the children and the parents, but according to Ann, Will Pearson seemed to be a terrible parent at times. My dad thought he was very unpleasant, okay? Yeah, no, my dad was well, well aware of that. 
My my aunt Alice told me that once that that things got worse after my dad graduated from high school and left home essentially, that her that their father got more and more difficult to deal with as the years went on. And she was four years younger, so she thought it got worse for her than it was for my father, and it was worse for Howard than it was for her. The judge was emotionally abusive to all of his children, especially Howard. Alice talked to Anne about the years when Bill had already left home, and she and Howard were the only ones left. Alice would retreat to her bedroom and quietly listen at the door every night for the judge to return from a long day at court. She told me once that when when she was in high school, it was after my father left home, she was telling me how things had gotten worse after my father left home. And she was telling me that she she heard him coming in the house. She'd go to her room and shut the door and just not come out until dinner time. She would avoid him as, as much as possible, just try not to be around him because he was so difficult. That must have been a tough way to grow up, to constantly be fearful of a parent. Alice felt guilty when she moved out to go to college and left Howard behind on his own with an emotionally abusive father. Defense attorney David Shepard says that Judge Pearson's Jekyll and Hyde persona shouldn't really surprise anyone. And of course, we know that that's true and it's so often in life. People have a public persona that is one thing and a private persona very, very different. And sometimes they're the, the different, you know, a person kind of has a public persona of being a, a son of a bitch and on a very close personal level are very sweet, gentle people. But more often, you have people that have a public face, as you know, and, and in private are pretty goddamn awful. It's easy for some public figures to keep up an act. And many times we never see through it. And that would be the case for Will Pearson. I would have never learned about the judge's temper and the trauma that he had inflicted on his family had I not found Ann Pearson. Just more family secrets. Judge Dimple Mahotra is a county judge in Austin who works specifically in the domestic violence court. She's spent more than 20 years trying to help break the cycle of domestic violence, like the verbal abuse the Pearson children experienced in the judge's home. I think that a lot of people don't realize that domestic violence is really an epidemic. Um, It is a public health crisis, and it has been labeled as such by the Center for Disease Control. And it's true that, you know, we do have more reporting, but the statistics surrounding domestic violence are staggering. Judge Mahotra says it's important to distinguish between the different types of conflict that happen at home. Frequent arguments or physical violence can have broad definitions, but domestic violence is a very specific category. Domestic violence is a systematic pattern of power and control that's used by one intimate partner against another. And so these things can make it worse, but they're not the cause of true domestic violence. You do have those situations where it's not domestic violence. It's two people who react violently to stress. But there's not a power differential there, and so that's really the difference. Domestic violence is an epidemic around the world. The National Coalition Against Domestic Violence reports that more than 10 million adults experience it annually. The survivors are overwhelmingly women, but men can also be subjected to abuse. And in the 1930s, domestic violence was even more severely underreported than it is today. Howard Pearson and his siblings were survivors. 
Hello. Hi, it's Kate Dawson. Oh, hi, Kate. Well, so let me update you on some stuff. I've ended up talking to quite a few people. It's so funny. It's funny just to kind of start with you and then branch out so much. The first family member I initially contacted was Marjorie Peterson, who I found through Ancestry.com. That's actually where I locate most of the relatives in my stories. And it turns out that Will Pearson had not been the only Pearson to be emotionally abusive. Marjorie Peterson is married to Rod Peterson. He's one of the Pearsons whose relatives moved to California after that fight over the bank in the early 1900s. Marjorie tells me a story about a different Pearson who tried to control his family. There were family issues, mainly because my husband's uncle, who lived in the Imperial Valley at the same time that we were courting, was the same kind of man. And that's why my husband pointed it out to me, that Marshall Pearson had that same really tough love kind of attitude towards his kids. And one of his children took a shotgun and tried to shoot him, too. So uh, it was sort of like, okay, <laughs> you have some people with some issues in this family. Wait, what story but, is that? I, I haven't heard that yet. Is that the Marshall Pearson in Corpus Christi? Is that that Marshall? No. No, that Marshall is, a, is on one of the family names that runs around through a lot of things. But George, the oldest boy, was, um, as family says, not quite right. And there was the push, you know, the very stern father telling him, you know, well, you can do it if you just try, you know. The fact that he may have had some learning difficulties, uh, he would accept that. Not acceptable in his son. Marshall Pearson's constant criticisms went on for years. His son felt degraded, frustrated, and then one day, George just snapped. So he pushed George a great deal. He was always on him to do better and, and never satisfied with what he did. Well, when George got to be a teenager, he had had enough. And one day his dad's out crop dusting and George took the shotgun and shot the tail of the plane. Nope. And... Uh, it shot it off, so wow. his dad had to make an emergency landing. Uh, but when he did land, of course, he was furious and basically beat him up. Wow. Uh, yeah, so the family has had this sort of stern, patriarchal kind of image that uh, some of the Pearson men had figured was what they, how they were supposed to behave, then treated their children not quite so nicely. And just like George Pearson, it sounds like Howard began to resent his father very early on in his life. Remember the story of how Howard pushed away the judge during his public inauguration? His father tried to pick up the six-year-old, but Howard reacted almost violently. What if that wasn't because Howard wasn't quite right? What if it was because Will Pearson wasn't a kind father to him? And remember that time in France when the judge enrolled Howard in French school and he was harassed. Ann Pearson says that Howard had blamed his father and no one else. He got bullied and he really did not like that year. That year in France was not good for him. And I've heard that story. More resentment, you know, that he took him out of school away from his friends in Texas and made him go to Europe, go to that horrible school in France where those kids picked on him. 
So I'll come back to my initial question. Why did Howard Pearson kill his parents? Was it the money? Was he the victim of abuse? Or could he blame his mental illness? The answer might be yes to all of it. That last reason, Howard's mental illness, is a tough one for me to sort out. The crime was clearly premeditated. He purchased the pistol five months in advance. He told his friend about the different methods he might use to commit murder, like faking a car wreck. And Howard even orchestrated a fairly elaborate cover-up. Was he striking back because of real circumstances, like severe emotional abuse from an overbearing father? Was he really capable of doing all of that while struggling with some pretty extensive delusions? Did Howard know what he was doing was wrong? I know I'm asking a lot of questions, but this case really does warrant a lot of thought. This story is about mental illness, violence, insanity, family secrets, and how they all intersect in a courtroom. Many prosecutors believe that a diagnosed schizophrenic wouldn't be capable of that type of planning so far in advance. Someone who commits a premeditated crime has to be sane. So all of that proves that Howard couldn't blame his mental illness for the murders, right? Defense attorney Krista Chacona has represented many clients who were diagnosed with schizophrenia, and she says that DAs often make the wrong assumption about mental illness. So you can be very ill. You can have a, a very, you know, a, a very specific and severe delusion and still be able to plan. You know, just because you're mentally ill doesn't mean that, that you, can't, you can't formulate a plan. So let's say this guy did for six months. He, you know, he planned to, uh, to kill his parents. Well, why was he planning to kill his parents? Was there some delusion that, you know, that his parents were demons and were sent here to destroy the world and he was the only one that knew or it was his sacred mission from God to do that. And Howard definitely had delusions. Remember, he said his parents weren't really his parents and that by taking Howard out of school, they were preventing him from becoming a famous scientist that was going to make people live forever. So he, he was able to formulate a plan. Just the fact that he could plan or the fact that he thought about it in advance doesn't mean that he wasn't mentally ill, doesn't mean that it wasn't this insane delusion that drove him to do that. And even cleaning up afterward. But what if it wasn't a delusion? If the judge had a history of verbal abuse, we don't know what Howard had been told growing up. If he weren't really schizophrenic, then did he belong in a mental hospital for the criminally insane? Chicano believes that everyone deserves a good defense, no matter what they've done. And she says that people with mental illness need even more help navigating the legal system. I mean, there are lots of reasons why people get involved in the criminal justice system. They all have people who love them. Not all of them are bad people, but I feel like there's just like an extra layer on top of these folks that have, you know, the mental health issues too, that just makes everything that much harder and that they are a I always say it kind of balances me out karmically from just, you know, representing the straight up alleged criminal to, you know, to help these folks. Because I just, yeah, I mean, I feel like, God, they need a break. And so somebody needs to, you know, be fighting for them. Insanity cases have always been controversial. And they're quite rare because they're difficult to prove. The defense has a high bar to meet, as I mentioned before. A reminder the insanity defense is used in only about 1% of the cases in the U.S., and it's successful less than 25% of the time. 
Much of that depends on where the case is adjudicated. Rural areas with more conservative judges might not be willing to consider an insanity plea. It's met with skepticism from many prosecutors, even in big cities. And when they're successful, the families of the victims are often angry and frustrated. They feel like the victims have been forgotten, or they believe that the mental illness isn't even real. It's an excuse. And there's the fear that someday, the person who killed their loved one might be released. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Howard Pearson's case isn't unique. On May 1st, 2017, something horrible happened at the University of Texas. Just a 10-minute walk from my office. One student was killed and three were injured on UT campus yesterday after another student attacked them with a hunting knife. KUT's Mose Bouchelle reports. As the crowd rushed away, UT Austin Police Chief David Carter says a campus police officer confronted the suspect who was carrying a large hunting knife. Here's Carter at a press conference later in the day. Officer confronted him, uh, drew his weapon, ordered the suspect to get on the ground, which he did comply. So we took an individual into custody. That individual was 21-year-old Kendricks White, also a UT student. Chief Carter gave little information as to motive or whether the victims were chosen at random. Kendricks White killed a 19-year-old freshman named Harrison Brown. Brown was a musician, a singer, and a successful student. White also seriously injured three other students that day. One of the survivors is 23-year-old Stuart Bayless. He was talking with two friends when they noticed people running. But he says that there were no warnings, no screams. And as Bayless tried to figure out what was happening, he felt something in his back. Kendricks came up behind me, put his uh, hand on my left shoulder and just stabbed me right in the uh, lower right lumbar area. Uh, Managed to miss my kidney and spinal cord, just barely, like literally millimeters. At that point, I reached around because Getting, getting stabbed is strangely not what you expect. And I, I don't know if it's the fact that I just didn't see it coming, so it's really just more of a shock, but it does not, it doesn't hurt that bad. So like in the movies where they all scream bloody murder, I mean, it, it really wasn't like that. Bayless was really confused and all of this happened in just seconds. He reached around and grabbed the blade as White pulled out the knife. The blade was large, like a machete. It sliced seven tendons in his hand. Bayless says he still didn't realize what happened, that he had been stabbed, but he couldn't feel his right hand. So he turned around and faced Kendrick's white. And uh, I didn't really like know that I had been stabbed. I just realized I couldn't move my hand and I saw blood and I was looking at him and he was just calm as can be. Really strange. He was wearing his Beats uh, headphones and just, it, it, was, it was really strange. What was the look on his face? We stared at each other, like just Point blank stared at each other, and it's like literally his face was expressionless. It's strange. It's kind of like 
just walking down the street and you actually make contact, eye contact with somebody on the street, y'all stare at each other for a second and you just immediately look away like nothing happened. It's kind of like that, but it's more of an eerie feeling when you, when you look back at it and remember it. Police arrested Kendricks White at the scene and he was indicted on a first degree murder charge and three counts of aggravated assault for the stabbing spree. Two forensic psychiatrists assessed White's mental state at the time of the killing. White's attorney says he had experienced a mental breakdown a month before and was hospitalized. White had been suffering from hallucinations, both auditory and visual. He said he had voices telling him to take his own life. At times, he believed that he was Jesus Christ and he felt like he was being buried alive. Ultimately, White was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder along with bipolar disorder. These two sometimes go together. The doctors determined that that day on campus, as he attacked strangers with a knife, White was in the throes of severe mental illness. They concluded that he wasn't able to distinguish between right and wrong when he killed Harrison Brown. A state judge ruled that White was not guilty by reason of insanity. He wouldn't spend any time in prison. He would be committed to a maximum security mental health facility. The judge's decision infuriated some of the families directly impacted by the attacks. Krista Chacona was on White's defense team. Do you think Kendricks is grateful about how this turned out? You know, I don't think he feels fortunate. I don't think he feels like he got away with anything. I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to wake up one day in jail and not know why you're there and have somebody tell you that you, you know, stabbed several people and killed one. I mean, how do you process that when you, especially when you can't remember, right? Like, I think it's got to feel not true on some level. It doesn't matter. You can see the video, you can see the reports, but on some level, it's got to feel like this isn't me. I wouldn't do that. I didn't do that. But for most of us, that could be hard to believe. How could someone do something so horrible and not even remember it? Michelle Haley is the prosecutor we've heard from who works on cases involving mental illness. She represented the state in Kendrick's White's case in 2017. She interviewed White, and afterward, she agreed with the judge's decision. She says that White is exactly where he should be, in a place where he receives help. You know, if you don't have any life experience with that, know someone personally, it's really hard to understand. And especially as the victim of a crime, like the Kendricks White case, for example, you know, my victims in that case felt like he was getting away with it because he was found insane at the time. It's hard for people like that when they're grieving and in such, you know, have gone through such trauma to explain it to them because <laughs> all they have is their pain. Stuart Bayless agrees. It was difficult at first to accept that White wouldn't be going to prison. But Bayless has forgiven White, and he actually has hope for him. So I kind of accepted, all right, he's, he's going to go to a mental facility. And I told myself, I have to be a good person in a sense. Like, I want Kendricks to heal. I still do. I still pray that he, he is healed. And it, again, it's not an easy thing to constantly think of that because human nature comes out where you're just like, you, you just want them to feel the pain that you felt, to feel the pain that everybody felt. It's, it gets, it's like a constant battle of like still hoping he is, he, he does heal because it is, it, I, I picture it more in the sense of like, if that was my son, you know, I could only pray that they heal. 
And the reality is, Kendrick's white will probably be released someday, if his doctors believe he's ready. Chacona is concerned for white, but not because she thinks he's dangerous. I'm sure when, when the time eventually comes that they feel that he's ready to go back out in the community, um, I think he's going to feel tremendous anxiety about that. Like, what if this happens again? I don't know how this happened the first time. You know, am I ready? Should, should I be allowed out? I think knowing him, I think he's going to experience all those emotions um, because he's a good kid. He's a responsible kid. And that will be a tough day for the victim's family and the survivor's. Michelle Haley says that those phone calls will be difficult ones to make. How do you even have that conversation? As the attorney in the room, I always just have to come back to the law. It's like I I empathize with them. You know, I have to understand their pain and what they want out of it. But this is the law. And the law says because he was insane at the time of the offense, he is not guilty because he cannot be held accountable for his inability to know right from wrong. So I just always bring it back to the law. It doesn't make them happy, but at least they understand I'm not just doing something mean to them, you know? (laughs) Um, We still don't like it. It comes from a fear of, like, something happening again. Like, you're wanting to watch out for the community. And that's ingrained in the fact that, like, I'm I'm never going to forget that this happened. All the other victims are never going to forget that this happened. And so it's this underlying fear of you don't want it to happen again. I, I, I think it's a totally reasonable fear. If somebody didn't fear that, I, 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 that'd be, there'd be something wrong there. Michelle Haley says that mental illness still has such a stigma in America and that bias seeps into criminal justice, causing some improper rulings. I think in a vacuum or objectively, most people would agree that yes, mental illness is in fact an illness and people shouldn't be held accountable for something that they didn't have control over. Unless you're the victim of that crime, then obviously you feel very differently. Are there parallels between the cases of Kendricks White and Howard Pearson? They both experienced delusions and hallucinations. They both had significant stressors, like moving away from home, and they were both in their early 20s. Certain types of mental illness tend to appear in a person's late teens or early 20s, and many times when they first move out of their parents' house. One forensic psychiatrist believed that the pressures from college had triggered White's illness. Back in 1935, doctors believed that one of Howard's acute stressors was his removal from UT. And I think that his subsequent job loss was another trigger. The endless strain of verbal abuse from his father and the complacency from his mother may have led to a deadly emotional mix. But there are absolutely differences between these two killers. Really big differences. They targeted different types of people. The way to distinguish that is when you have someone who's mentally ill, who is being violent, typically they are violent to anyone and everyone around them. They're not able to really discern that they um, can only exhibit those behaviors to the person that they're in an intimate relationship with. So Kendrick's white was violent until police stopped him. He didn't fight them once he was caught. He didn't try to lie or create a cover-up. And he didn't try to run afterward. That attack didn't seem to be pre-planned, with the exception of White carrying a weapon. White's victims were completely random. 
he didn't know any of them. This certainly was not the case with Howard Pearson. He planned the murders extensively. His victims were specific, not random. And he constructed a cover-up. It seems clear that Howard Pearson knew right from wrong. Yet a jury in 1935 decided that he was insane. Something seems wrong. He understood what he did was wrong, and he knew the difference between right and wrong, and he tried to cover up his crime. By that definition, yeah, he got away with murder. But again, insanity is not a medical definition. It is a political definition. So he got away with murder in Texas, but did he get away with murder in Sweden? In 1935, Howard Pearson was confined to the Austin State Hospital, the oldest psychiatric facility in Texas. A schizophrenic patient like Howard would have benefited from psychiatric drugs, but there were none in 1935. Chlorpromazine wasn't available until the 1950s. So how were psychiatric patients treated? Psychiatrists used strategies to try to sedate people more than anything else. There were some pretty appalling methods, like spinning people around on these weird chairs that were specifically designed to supposedly calm people. But it probably just made them nauseous. There were water treatments that really sounded more like waterboarding, which is a torture device. Doctors would drop patients unexpectedly into water, or they would cover them with wet sheets to shock their systems. There were insulin therapies that induced seizures, Practitioners were dabbling in radical cures, just attempting to eliminate mental illness altogether. But some of them actually ended up killing quite a few people. We don't know what type of therapy Howard was subjected to at the Austin State Hospital, how cruel it might have been, or how it affected his ability to control his anger. What we do know is that he didn't want to be there anymore. But the hospital was designed to keep its residents locked away because some of them were really dangerous. You couldn't just walk out the door. Or could you? After almost three years of confinement, 26-year-old Howard Pearson came up with a very clever plan. A plan as calculating as the one he used to murder his parents. But first, Howard needed a way to get past his locked door. Apparently, he had uh, stolen a spoon from the kitchen. And very patiently, over a, a long period of time, fashioned a key from the spoon. And actually, this was the third key he made. The first two wouldn't work on the outer door of the hospital. But Howard was very, very patient. And he had nothing but time. On April 26, 1938, Howard believed he was ready to escape. He glanced at the clock, 7.30 p.m. The guard at the front door of the Austin State Hospital switched off the lights and left for the night. Howard sat up and readied himself. He hopped out and gathered some hospital clothes. And then he did something that a teenager in a bad movie would do to cover up his escape. Bed checks were routine at night. And if the guards noticed he wasn't in bed, they would immediately call the police. 
So Howard wadded up his clothes beneath his bedsheets to make it look as if he were asleep underneath. And as silly as that sounds, it actually worked. He crept past the other patients. Howard knew if he made it out, his hospital-issued clothes would give him away. So he snuck into a storage room and searched for some normal clothes. He found a brown suit from another inmate. He slowly walked down the hall and watched the night guard from around the corner. When the officer turned his back, Howard tiptoed over to the outer door. He put his makeshift key into the lock and it turned. Howard Pearson was out and on the run. The hospital guards didn't notice he was missing until their routine check the next morning. It's not a particularly unusual story in the annals of people who escape. You've been there a long time. The guards get comfortable with you. You behave yourself. You're in prison, but you behave yourself. After a while, people get too comfortable. They trust you too much, and he, he escaped. The search for the infamous killer who gunned down his parents made national news. His photo was printed in papers across the country. Americans were warned not to approach the escaped murderer. He could be anywhere, and he might kill again. Howard had planned this event extensively. So this is the second crime he had committed and plotted very far in advance. And that makes Gary Laverne wonder just how insane he really was. How out of it, how delusional can you be if you can orchestrate something like that and end up in Minneapolis, Minnesota? Soon Howard was living on the lam, and none of the Pearsons had heard from him. So no one knew what he had planned. Howard was resourceful, but it's not clear if he was dangerous. After all, who would he actually target? He had deliberately killed his parents. Were there other people that he believed were holding him back? I think if I had been there and if I had known him, it would have surprised me because the focus of his delusion was his father and how his father had kept him down. Uh, In order for him to, logically speaking, in order for him to kill again, I think he would have had to have developed a new uh, delusion on someone else. I just don't know what that would have been. For example, you know, he, he killed his father because his father was keeping him down. Well, his brother wasn't keeping him down. But Laverne hasn't heard the whole story because I only found out more details after I started digging further in. About a month after I interviewed Gary Laverne, I found some letters buried deep inside an archive at Stephen F. Austin State University. They were between family attorneys and Howard's family members while he was in the mental hospital. And it's clear from these letters that Howard Pearson felt like someone was holding him down, just like his father did. And it was someone very close to him, someone who was supposed to be his advocate. I drove to Temple, Texas to talk with Oliver Perkins about it and to tell him about Howard's surprising reaction. He says that his brother Bill had an ulterior motive for wanting to keep him at the hospital 
and he did not want him to be released. Hmm, interesting. So Howard is attempting to write letters, but he's claiming that Bill instructed the hospital to intercept the letters. Um, but I wonder if it's true. It's quite a conspiracy. So Howard was on the run, and he might have been violent, maybe even calculating his next crime. On the next episode of Tenfold More Wicked. When he was institutionalized, he had inherited, you know, a certain amount of money from my grandparents. And because he was institutionalized, he used, spent very little of it. Um, and so it, most money, when you don't spend it, accumulates, you know. Alice and William Jr. had taken a third of it. And they said, no, we, we're going to protect Howard's part of it. And so his brother, Bill, had been very careful to take care of it. It sounds like he definitely did not get fully recovered from his <laughs> mental health issues. If you love true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. They're available anywhere you buy books. This has been an Exactly Right and Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling and Laura Sobel. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer, Curtis Heath. Artwork, Nick Toga. Executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. The letters mentioned in this episode were kindly supplied by the East Texas Research Center at Stephen F. Austin University. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com ads. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. So please listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>